All right. Wow. Thank you for coming to, uh, um, well, I guess what might be our last Sunday school in Esther. Sad about that. Lord willing, we're planning on in this very room a little bit of biblical counseling um, starring Josh Krause. Um, in, uh, Lord willing, in January, on the January the 7th. Um, so uh, looking forward to that. But um, I don't think any Sunday school, either Sunday school on um, next week or two weeks from the day. Uh, maybe the covenant one will be on the 31st, um, I think. So um, probably still to be decided on that. Papa, before um, Jared reads for us, we have not, how do we, are we nine weeks in where we haven't talked about the author much? You think maybe Mordecai of the book of Esther? It, it, it was in Haman. We know that. His ten sons. Nope. Those guys either. Um, the reason why I think Mordecai is because in this very chapter it says Mordecai was greatly regarded in the kingdom. And he would have been the most familiar with all the details of the story. Uh, even Esther was hanging out with the king, so she was not involved in all this palace intrigue. But mm-hmm. um, uh, so I, I, I my guess like would be a likely Mordecai. choice. And 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 uh, I was telling uh, Miss Elizabeth or anybody who was listening that uh, Esther and Mordecai are buried together in Anak Batna. That was the old Median capital. You know, they had four capitals in Persia. And so, uh, but nothing's, Mordecai was replaced in 65, which was the same year that uh, Xerxes was assassinated. So um, if he wrote it, I I don't know. He would have been maybe on the heels of that he wrote it. Yeah. And some commentators think that. Yeah, no, I I like that. I think it was Matthew Henry said this. He said uh, he was leaning toward, it sounded like he leaned toward Mordecai himself after Matthew Henry consulted with Papa. He leaned toward Mordecai himself and said, but because there is so little of the language of Canaan in this book, many think it might not have been Mordecai, but was an extract out of the journals of the king of Persia, given an account of the matter of fact, which the Jews themselves knew how to, comment upon and so kind of interesting to um to think about and uh spe- it's kind of uh, like who wrote hebrews right yeah that's right we wouldn't know that one either i guess and kind of fun to think about and talk about uh papa's been our historian um for sure if you're new to these nine weeks and uh i think did you find the what's it called here the the book of memorable deeds do you have that yeah, good. I think Papa has that in case you want to look so, at that later. Except I won't let you read them. <laughs> no, no. They're not memorable anymore, right? Forgettable deeds. Forgettable deeds. Yeah, I'd but, rather forget them. Yeah. Would you, Jared, read for us? So let's maybe start with those first 19 verses. It's broken up a little bit today. And uh, we're looking to get aggressive and get in with chapter 10 as well, um, Lord willing. So. All right. Esther 9. <laughs> Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. 
the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Asuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces, and the satraps, and the governors, and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphin, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Wow, so interesting. Jared, would you pray for us and we'll get busy? Yeah. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, guide us through this book as we read it and pray that you would... Um, teach us what you, you want us to know, and I pray that we would have a heart of wisdom to know your will and to apply this book to our lives today. And in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Papa, before hearing from you, I love this. This was from uh, Alistair Begg, and, and if you've been here for part of this study or maybe even have just gathered up from reading the book of Esther, it is so much about God's providence. And uh, uh, Beg said this, I thought it was great. He said, this stands in direct contrast to many in our culture. That you, and you may know, uh, may be one of them. You have come today just to consider these things or not even sure why you've come. But if you think about your life, you perhaps don't see it in those kind of terms, like God's providential uh, hand being all over us. Um, you may think of your life as a big jigsaw puzzle and the bits and pieces haphazardly fit together every so often, but there's no real rhyme or reason to it. There's no overarching purpose or plan. There's no obvious pathway through life. There's no significance to one origin. There's no ultimate destiny towards which one is moving. That kind of contemporary flavor of thinking is directly challenged by what we've been discovering in Esther. And that is for sure. It is so laced with God's orchestrating every single event. And uh, he was um, d differentiating or contrasting 
way Nehemiah, which is all speaking of God continually, wrote, and whoever wrote this, if it's Mordecai, whoever wrote the book of Esther, hides the word of God. There isn't God's name or even prayer mentioned, but yet God's sovereignty and providential hand is all through the book continually. And uh, what a, just so beautifully done in, in, in such an, in an intriguing way. Papa, tell us about what you, um, for starters here, the Jews dealing with their enemies. Um, uh, before I do that, I want to kind of just take two minutes and, and give this little summary. Uh, you're right. God is a, is a God of, of providences, but he's, got, he's a God of reversals. Uh, we see this and we see this in, um, in the Exodus. We see this in uh, uh, Joseph going down into Egypt. We see this uh, now in, uh, we see this in King Cyrus freeing the Jews to go back home. He, and, and, and it says in Isaiah 45, I, God chose my shepherd Cyrus to let my people go. Mm-hmm. And I, he said, he doesn't even know me. But he, he chose Cyrus to let his people go. So he's the, he's the God of, you may not always see him in the, in the windshield going forward, but you see him in the, in the rearview mirror. But we know he's going forward. That's the great thing. Once we read this, we know we, because we've seen God's past faithfulness, oh, absolutely. we can trust him tomorrow. And he is not missing out, nor has he not ordained. That's too many double negatives. He's ordained everything that's going to happen. And what a joy to live like that. It just brings floods of joy, like we're going to see here the, the Jews um, end up living in that. Well, just a quick uh, quick summary. You're, you're right, and we're, we're going to call those out. This is a lot of verses, so we kind of have to group them. Um, uh, just about five or six points here. The fall of Vashti, which brings Esther to the attention of King Ahasuerus and to the position of the Queen of Persia. We know that from back in Esther 1 and, and 2. And then Mordecai is a revelation. He's, he's got a position at the gate. He, uh, he, he overhears this assassination plot to kill the king, a deed which is recorded in the King's Chronicles, but is not rewarded at the time. And then the king's sleepless night uh, results in him, of all things, reading this memorable deeds booklet, which is like, kind of like the phone book. And, uh, and it just, he just so happens to turn to the very page that reveals this assassination plot. And then, uh, but Haman's jealousy of Mordecai, which results in his preparing a gallows for Mordecai, uh, from which Haman himself is eventually hung. And Esther's disclosure to the king of Haman's plot to destroy all the Jews, herself being among them, she leaves the room and he leaves the room in a rage. The king does, but returns just as Haman's uh, leaning on the uh, the queen's uh, sofa, I guess, and is enraged that that he's in this position, assaulting his queen. And then this last-minute reversal edict with an order to slay those who want to kill the Jews. So. We're back and forth and back and forth. But isn't this sort of like life? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you go back in your life, see, we don't chronicle this probably like we should. But I think if we did, we would see 
the providences of God, the and, reversals of God. And that, how many do we even know? Uh, one or two percent well, well, of them, right. maybe, right? That's right. God's yeah. orchestrating all these things around us to every single thing is working together for good all day long for every single believer. How fascinating. And the orchestration of that, that's only happening because of our Lord and due to his faithfulness is an extraordinary thing and changes everything about life. So I call this chapter the big reverse. Big reverse. Yep. And reversals right in there in, in uh, chapter nine, verse one. Jared, um, what would you say the significance of these reversals, because there'd been a bundle of them. Yeah, the reversals are definitely a, a big theme throughout this whole book, and we need to ask the questions like, what is this? What is the significance of all these reversals? And I think it's really they're pointing to the biggest reversal in human history, which is the conquering of of Christ on the cross, where all these forces of evil come against Christ and put him on the cross. And when you think about the example of Haman creates a gallows for Mordecai. And he's ended up, he ends up getting hanged on the same exact gallows that he made for Mordecai. And the same way you have Pilate, you have the Gentiles, you have the Jews, they all come, come against Jesus and they put him on a cross. And the cross is ironically the means by which they're going to be condemned on the final day. That's the standard by which um, God will judge the world. So thinking through all these reversals in this book, it's ultimately pointing forward to God's triumph over evil in the end. No. So good, Papa. Well, right now we're on the 13th day. That's kind of like D-Day. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the date that um, Haman and his uh, casting of lots determine the 13th day of Adar. So we've been talking about that almost since chapter three. Mm -hmm. So now we're at this 13th day. And, which was uh, going to be horrifying. Which was going to be originally. But originally. then, but then um, uh, Mordecai and Esther accomplished a reversal. Uh, decree, which could not be revoked either, that the Jews could defend themselves. Now, this is a defensive posture. This is they could defend themselves and, and they could all, also take plunder. But the scripture repeatedly says they did not plunder. Mm. So they had the option of plundering, but they did not plunder yeah. there. Do you have reasons why, Jared, what's your thought on the plundering? Uh, or the lack thereof? Um... I have a few possibilities. I know. Um, Phone work. <laughs> I know in the book of Deuteronomy it gives this law, where it says, "In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction: the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God." So I think one of the possibilities could be that they're just trying not to intermingle with the Persian Empire, and they're trying to keep them at an arm's length here, like they don't want to mix in with the abominations that they would consider that the Persians would be committing and worshiping foreign gods. Another possibility is that it mentions in Hebrews 10 that um, it says, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you had, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Hmm. So we talked about um, in chapter eight where it says, they had gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. So perhaps the Jews are, are thinking through this and they're saying, well, 
Um, we're going to be thankful for what God has done for us in redeeming us from the enemies that were trying to take us out. And so they were thinking about the fact that they just had relief from their enemies. They weren't worried about plundering, but um, they were just thankful to God for his mercy and compassion in this situation. Yeah. Well, we're, ju we're jumping forward to the next section, but Purim is all about celebration, deliverance, relief. Uh, um, in, in fact, it's a it's a fun holiday if you've never seen a Purim play. Uh, you got the little groggers, and every time Haman's name is mentioned, you go Brrr, so you can't hear his name, and you actually write his name on the bottom of your shoe so that you can stamp out <laughs> you can stamp out Haman. <laughs> uh, but uh, so it's a time of celebration and they they, uh, they have a feast which you would like and and I would like uh, yes making me hungry just thinking of it. <laughs> so you would you say that your guess is they were looking forward kind of like George saying they're looking forward to this celebration. The plundering wasn't their main No, no, no. Goal. And, and remember that when, um, at first, when the first decree went out, they were, everybody was mourning. I mean, Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes and throughout the whole, I mean, the Persian Empire was the largest empire that's ever existed on the face of the globe in one piece. And everybody, all the Jews were mourning in the 127 provinces. That includes present-day Israel because of this mm -hmm. decree. Now they have something to look forward to. Yeah, they've got to defend themselves. And, and obviously there's some casualties in this, and I'm sure there's some Jewish casualties as well. That's not mentioned. And didn't you say 15 million Jews possibly? That That's was what one of the commentators of the said, 15 million Jews. Um, in a big area, though, 127 province. Right, and it, it, it uh, extended all the way from India to Greece, down to Ethiopia, including Israel and uh, Egypt. So pretty big, pretty big place. Yeah. And it would have included, and we talked about this last time, it would have included Zerubbabel and the bloodline of Christ. Oh, yeah. Because the group that went back took the credentials of Jesus with them in their DNA. Right. In their genealogy. That's good, Papa. Jared, would you um, comment on this? I remember reading this and thinking, now, wait a second. Okay, so they can defend themselves, but that still doesn't guarantee that they win. Like, what, um, how does that, I know the edict couldn't be reversed, the first one, so they have to make a second edict. Um what do you, Jared, how do you see that as far as the, um, they were defensive. It wasn't that they were the aggressor, the Jews, right? Yeah, so there's a sense where um, the Jews really did not take vengeance into their own hands in this story, I, I don't think. Um, it looks like Esther and Mordecai go through this whole process of appealing to the king so that through the government, they can have this edict, this new edict that allows them to defend themselves. So um, I think just application for us, we should be careful not to be taking vengeance into our own hands, but entrusting that to God. We know that the emperor is the, um, the servant of God who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So 
the the government is one of the means by which um, God takes out vengeance on people. And I mean, in this story, I, I don't think the Jews really did anything wrong there. They they waited for the edict to give them permission to defend themselves. Right, Baba. Um, just, just a thought. Uh, Alistair made a point that. Uh, it says in verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King uh, Xerxes to lay hands on those who would harm them. Uh, and no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Uh, and the reason why is all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. And this is why I think he wrote the thing. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So uh, you, had, you had all the satraps, all the governors, uh, you had the officials in all the 127 provinces that were supporting the Jews. I think they saw that the tide had turned, that Mordecai was a leader, uh, he was a righteous man. And, and, uh, so they want, I mean, this was never a military action. This was anti-Semitism at its peak. Yeah. This is people that hated the Jews and anti-Semitism exists today. Read the news. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. And, and so, uh, you had all these people supporting the Jews in addition to the Jews themselves. So it wasn't that they were solo. In, yeah. the, in this effort. Uh, no, that's right. Uh, and just to um, uh, add to what uh, Alistair said there, Matthew Henry said, they all saw it their interest to help Mordecai's friends because he was not only great in the king's house and caressed by the cur um, courtiers, many who have intrinsic worth to support their reputation, but his fame and wisdom and virtue went... Um, out thence throughout all the provinces, in all places he was extolled as a great man. He was looked upon as a thriving man, as one that waxed greater and greater. And therefore, for fear of him, all the king's officers helped the Jews. Many men may, by their influence, do a great deal of good. Many that fear not God will stand in awe of them. I thought that was pretty interesting um, on his... Uh, um, kind of description of Mordecai there. Well, I, th I think also, too, we, we have a little time. You know, one of the things it took Haman a year to figure out when he's going to kill the Jews. But then they had another year in which to execute this thing from, on the 13th of Adar. Mm. So, and, and then the reverse uh, plot through Mordecai and Esther. So, you know, I think the, uh, es uh, Mordecai had, had time to establish his reputation throughout the provinces. I, mean, I think it was eight or nine months before this need was actually executed. Yeah. So people knew about him. Yeah. Well, that was is interesting. If you go back to 13 and 14, and Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Those were the ones that uh, Jared memorized and told Forrester. So the king commanded this to be done, a decree that was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 14th day of the month, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands 
on the plunder, like you were saying, Papa. I thought this was interesting um, from uh, Matthew Henry again. If all of these were Amalekites, his guess was that they killed the Amalekites. Back to that. You've got to give us a quick back story on those guys. Why uh, we got Haman and Mordecai here at odds due okay. to a uh, 500 well, well, year... We'll speed through the Amalekite situation. Um, Amalek was a son of Esau. The Amaleks, uh, the Amalekites, uh, you remember uh, when during the Exodus, you know, when they're traipsing through the Sinai, uh, attacked the rear of the uh, Hebrew people and women, children, and, and that's kind of a dirty deed to attack the rear because the, the, the force was up front. And uh, so there was a curse. God cursed the Malachites for that. And um, uh, later on, um, as you know, King, King Saul was given an order to kill the Amalekites, including King Agag. Take no prisoners, take no uh, booty, take no plunder, kill them all. And he didn't do that. He didn't do it. And Samuel had to take care of business. So that, that um, blood feud existed from a, roughly a thousand years before this time. Uh, and, and now I think we're taking care of the Amalekites. But the reason why the 10 sons of Haman, I think, are included is because there it used to be that you would execute the sons so they wouldn't take vengeance on the dad. Mm -hmm. So I think that, and that's why Esther asked for a second day in Susa, uh, because I think that the opposition was particularly severe. Susa was one was the main administrative capital. And so uh, because of these 10 sons of Haman, I think they were leading the the charge against the Jews. Yeah, and that's what this, that's what uh, I think, um, again, Matthew agreed with you on that, Henry. And all these were Al, um, Amalekites, like the Jews say. Surely now it was that the remembrance of um, Amalek was utterly put out. However... That which justifies them in the execution of so many is that they did it in their own just and necessary defense. They stood for their lives, authorized to do so by the law of preservation as well as the king's decree. So this was not all of that to say the Jews were not at all wrong in doing what they did. They did the right thing. Um, Jared, could you tell us about, talk to us a, uh, a bit about both the destruction of the sons of Haman and the Jews gathering together there? Yeah, I think just Papa Fred said it so well, but I think going on that, there's this like full circle moment where Saul fails to kill Agag and he was commanded by the Lord to completely devote it to destruction. Whereas Esther, on the other hand, kills all, all 10 sons of Haman. So there's this full circle Amalek curse moment where they actually do get destroyed. And I think um, what we can draw from that is that Israel was at its peak when Saul was commanded to kill Agag. This was at the beginning of their kingdom and at the beginning of their power. They were one of the strongest nations in the world and they failed to follow the command of the Lord. Whereas now Israel is down in the dumps there and they've gone through the Babylonian captivity. They've gone through all this um, these trials and persecutions, and now they're actually carrying out the command of the Lord and doing the will of God here. So I think what we can draw from this is that God's power is really made perfect in weakness, not in strength. 
Because if Israel was at their peak and they failed to follow his command because they were being presumptuous, they were, Saul was being prideful, or he didn't feel like he needed to carry out the, the order, but now they do when they're at their lowest power. So I just thought it was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, th- one thing I didn't m- mention in the genealogy thing, um, Mordecai was uh, a son of Cush, and so was Saul. So they were related. Mm. So where Mordecai is doing now what Saul should have done. Didn't, should have done. No, really, uh, really well put. Anything before we go on from verse 20? Jared, you want to read for us again um, from 20 to the end? Yeah, sure. To the end of nine. Uh, let's go all the way to the end of 10. Okay. Ambitious. <laughs> and Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Asuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Asuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther was confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Asuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Asuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. You talk about reversal. Papa, I imagine you've got some thoughts on uh, um, this feast. Yeah, um, yes. Uh, You know, it's kind of fun because we go from lament over this confrontation, death, 70. But, you know, when you think of 75, I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the numbers, but 75,000 over 127 provinces, they they made the point that it was like 600 um, casualties, Mm. you know. So it's not like... It, it, we, we've seen big numbers in, in warfare. So uh, now it, it is interesting. I, I do want to back, back up just one second. It's very interesting how the king has changed. If you go back to 12, I know where I'm backing up. Oh, yeah. No. And the king said to Queen, now this is the king. 
and, and the number killed in Susa is reported to king, which was 500. So the king says to queen, the king's coming to Esther now saying, in Susa, the citadel, uh, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? You know, he's asking her, he's the king. And she says, uh, what have they done in the rest? Now, what is that? What is your wish? He's asking her wish. It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. That she wanted another day because of the sons of Hamadatha mm -hmm. or, or Haman. And uh, so that's kind of interesting. He's going to her, and she's giving him advice. And she's the one who says, you know, hang the sons of of, of Haman. Which so, isn't completely out of character, right? He hasn't really made his own decision in 10 chapters. No, no. And really. he doesn't live very many more years and he's assassinated and taken out anyway. Yeah. So, as far as the feast, Mordecai then, we switch in chapter, in verse 20, and Mordecai records all these things. See, I think he's he's a recorder. He mm -hmm. That's why I think he could logically have written Makes this, sense, this book. Uh, and all the provinces, both far and near. So the rest of the book, really from 20 to uh, 32, are all about keeping this feast, the Feast of Purim. And uh, Mordecai sends the first letter, and Esther sends the second letter. There's a second letter. And I guess that's to make sure that, I mean, this is a big deal for the Jews. There's, uh, I don't know what the population of Persia was at that time, but... 15 million is probably not very many people as far as the Jews are concerned, but they wanted to remember this date. And to this day, I got this little book I got from David. It's called The Feast of the Lord, and it's by Marvin Rosenthal, and, and it talks about Purim. And, and actually, Adar is the last month. Now, they've changed these months somewhat, but uh, Passover follows is not long after uh, Adar, Nisan, so uh, in the church year. And so this is a official uh, feast now in, in Judaism, and they observe this, and they celebrate. So it would be every year? Every year, uh, on the 14th of Adar, somewhere around there. Uh, and sometimes they, they, they do it for two days. And they bring food, and they celebrate, and they have this... They read the scroll of Esther. They read the story of Esther, and they stomp their feet when Haman's mentioned and stuff like that, you know, just to remember. But I'm wondering, do we really remember? I mean, or, or do we read the Christmas story and say, oh, well, I know about Bethlehem and, you know, whatever, uh, or, or the Easter story? You know, that's, that's the purpose sometimes in Lent or Advent is to prepare our hearts for uh, what's really happened, the, the true impact on our lives. So, Yeah, I think it's a great point Papa makes there is let's really, and maybe we'll get to see more of our relatives this month than we get to see normally, but boy, let's be aggressive to talk about God's past faithfulness because that's what we're celebrating here. That's what the Jews are celebrating. And we ought to do this the same well, they, they do this, you know, they do this for Hanukkah, too. Now, Hanukkah is, is about, is this month. And, and the reason for Hanukkah is that, uh, uh, you know, the Seleucids took over the, the, the temple and, and uh, eliminated worship. 
and, and uh, the Maccabees overthrew the Seleucids and freed the Jews to worship. And for mm, almost 100 years, the Jews had control of Israel. It's the first time ever since um, the, the captivities. So it was a short period of time, but they, but, and they, so they celebrate the Feast of Lights and Jesus would have done that because it's mentioned in scripture. That's great. Feast of Dedication, when wow. they rededicated the temple. Well, and it, it would make sense then for us to tell our families, you know, about how God's providential hand brought you to salvation. Like Josh, look, I mean, I think about your life and I think of, you know, the growing up days and then how God brings in Ian. I'm missing, you know, 100,000 things in between here, but how God brings in Ian and you guys start working out and then, and, and God draws you to himself through a different means than anybody else. But how encouraging. We had four of our uh, freshman boys that have just been, that sure seems like they've been regenerated in the last uh, well, two of them within, since April, and two of them probably before then. But they just shared this week, oh, is that an amazing thing, talking about how changed their life is. Talking about how, my favorite quote, it wasn't by one of these, but one of our seniors said, I would rather die than go back to being an wow. unbeliever. And he says, now, I'm going to heaven, so that's not really a big thing that I'm giving up if I die. But he's saying, that was so bad in comparison to the abundant life of living for Christ. And I just think those are the kind of things that are thrilling for us to hear, to share. Share your testimony of what God's done for you. Share the providential hand that you see looking back, like you said, Papa, in the... Um, in the rear view mirror, and there's so many things that we can look at and just be amazed at. I think it helps us going forward, helps us to trust going forward. I won't share it publicly, but I, you know, I, um, since we've been in Esther and because of the Providence series, I, I've, I've gone back to some really key and major moments in my life. And, and it's just, it's, it's, it's wonderful to recall how God was there, even though I didn't I didn't know how to identify that at that moment in my life and then uh, how it worked out. And sometimes are the hardest things oh, oh, that yeah. are going on. And I came and well, just like so that, Just like the all things, like you say, is both good and bad. Yeah, absolutely. Both. Yeah. God's not hindered by no. the sin, our by sin, or other yours. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, very thankful. Jared, tell us how this, compare the feast and and salvation for us here. They are they are feasting um, and and tell us how what what can we gather? Um, I kind of want to build build on what Papa Fred was saying there a minute ago about remembering the feast. It says in every in verse twenty eight in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And I was reminded of the story of Josiah when he finds the book of the law and he's, he tears his clothes and he's mourning and he realizes that Israel has been faithless. And he says, the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as is written in the book of the covenant. And I didn't know this, but it says, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel really? or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. So from Judges all the way through Israel, 
there's apparently no Passover that had been kept there. And I just, it reminded me of this and how easily we forget um, the salvation of the Lord. And um, so he commands that Purim should never fall um, into disuse here. Um, so I, I, we're going through Psalm 103 with uh, Josh and we're memorizing it. And it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And so I was reminded how easily we we forget about the good things that God has done in our life. And then after that, it pretty much just presents the gospel and says, um, he heals all your diseases. He redeems your, your life from the pit. He crowns you with um, steadfast love and mercy. So, I mean, just going through this and thinking about how important it is, it is for us to think back on the the blessings that God has given us in our lives. Yeah. And, and, and if... Uh... And if we're around folks, whether that's at work or our families or wherever we are, and if they just think, well, they're just an old stick in the mud that's really nothing's happening in their life, then we probably really haven't done a very good job of, of sharing what all God's done and how amazing it's been. I love listening to yours, Papa, of going back to saying all the events that God's used. So, Jared, that's interesting, and thank you for, for that. How about observing the feast every year? What you got for us on that? Um, it, it's actually observed on uh, some some Jews do it for two days, but it's normally like a one day one day feast at, on Adar and the thirteenth day or fourteenth day. And, yeah, and they 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 read the scroll of. Uh, well, let me re- let me read you some of the things they what they say and what Marvin says here. Um, they. Um, Modern observance, after being instituted after the Mosaic Law, Purim is, is considered a minor holiday and no restrictions are placed upon working. You know, some of the feasts you can't work, the, the old law. Um, even in the book of Esther, no religious ceremonies were observed other than the time of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another, sounds like Christmas, and gifts to the poor. With no other details given for its observance, many warm Purim traditions have developed over the past 2,500 years. And it's an old holiday. And uh, they do read the Scroll of Esther. They read the story. And I mentioned already the, the clapping and the uh, feet stomping. And it's just kind of a fun. Karen and I were blessed to attend a Messianic um, synagogue and for Purim. And it was kind of fun. It was laughter and joyful. And and uh, it's been a long time ago, too. Um, but... You know, I, I guess we do that with with Christmas and, and and Easter, but you know, how many other family gatherings do we have that when we should be giving our testimony? Uh, Christmas is coming up, and we well, I know we have family gatherings and that type of thing, and just to share what mm-hmm. God has done in our yep. lives. That's for so good, year. Jared. Any insights on why this uh, once a year and and what that? Maybe what can we learn from that? I mean, I think it's just helpful to have um, specific dates that you remember God's faithfulness. I mean, we do this with Christmas. We do this with Easter. Every year we set aside a specific amount of time that we should um, celebrate what God has done for his people. No, so good. Um, Oh, this chapter 10. One more thing right here. 
I found this phrase really uh, intriguing about Mordecai here. I loved it. Um, verse 2, in the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the um, book of the Chronicles of the um, Kings of Media and Persia? Persia? Yeah. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. And this was the phrase that got me. For he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to the people. What a great thing to be known for, that he sought the welfare of his people. That's what I, I just think. If could they say that about us? We seek the welfare of our family, of our church, of uh, the people that we work with. Are we, you know, I guess not very self-centered. Was there anything about Mordecai that seemed self-centered in this whole book? He was always looking out for whether it was the king during the assassination plot. For Esther, continually. What a great... You know, what a great thing. So many of you do such a good job. And Jane, I'm thinking about how you look for the welfare of others in um, family groups and the way your hospitality. Just everybody's got a different giftedness in how they do that. Jared, any kind of final um, thoughts maybe on that or, or anything else or Papa do? Yeah, I just like verse 30, just kind of a, a big picture. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Aswaris in words of peace and truth. I mean, it really just reminded me of the victory of Christ um, when he was resurrected and then how the gospel just went out um, to the entire world. And it says, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. So just thinking about the the extent of God's kingdom and um, its ability to um, expand. That's good. Papa, anything to close this? Um, nothing except that, well, there's, there's, I, we've got church in a few minutes. Um, I'm just carried away. You know, this, this empire, uh, the Persian Empire, um, present day is largely uh, Muslim today. But even uh, Islam recognizes Mordecai, Esther, Daniel. Daniel's tombs, uh, tomb, tomb, tomb is in Shushan or Susa. Uh, it's not called Shush now. And it's got an obelisk. And he's buried right there. And then uh, uh, Mordecai and Esther are in, are in Akbatna. So they recognize them as being important biblical people. Yeah. As well as Abraham and Jesus. And no, it's so. interesting. That really is. Flavel, let's close on him. Should always go back to a Puritan. I love it. What a world of rarities are to be found in Providence with profound wisdom, infinite tenderness, and incessant vigilance. It has managed all that concerns us from first to last. Boy, if we have seen anything, um, it has convinced us, this book, I hope, has convinced us that we can trust our God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, everything we need for life and godliness, 
through his son and through his word, right here in God's word, we're convinced of that. Um, the, it's a thrilling thing to live like that. Um, and I think that's what we need to uh, go about and, and come back to this often. Papa, would you pray uh, for us uh, so we don't miss church? I'll do that. Thank you, Jerry. <clears throat> Father God, uh, King of the universe, uh, thank you for the blessing. Uh, and I mean that with all my heart of being able to spend weeks in this book. Um, it, it's been, it's, it's piggybacked on our, our Providence series and, and page after page, chapter after chapter, we've seen your, your unseen hand uh, work. Uh, miracles, uh, do reversals, uh, just accomplish your will. As Jerry always says, our God's in the heavens and he does all he pleases. And he's certainly done that in the, uh, uh, in the book of Esther. And to uh, save his people, to save the remnant uh, that would birth ultimately the Messiah and in a world that desperately needs a savior. So thank you, Father, for the, the joy of, of participating in this panel and for the uh, faithful uh, people that have attended and that listen. And I pray for our, our worship service that uh, we'll probably be singing Christmas carols too. And, and uh, let that be a reminder of Christmas, Christmas's past, as well as the reason for the season, the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the prayers, for the singing, for the scripture reading and uh, just for our hearts in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Good deal. Thanks for coming. Usually you say you should read something uh, for next week and that'd be a great idea, but that's kind of up to you.